Welcome to Hermeneutics again. We're in our third session. It's good to hear from all of you before we started recording. And the last two weeks we've been introducing the course, talking a little bit about hermeneutics. I'm not going to go over all of that. Two major things. We've looked at hermeneutics kind of trying to define it and looked at it broadly, and we defined it as the science and art of interpretation, simple definition, capturing two major aspects of it, the science part, which includes principles, but also the art aspect of it that deals with the practice of the principles and we call it an art because it's not a formula it's not kind of a set process but more of skill that you develop as you continue to exegete passages we also looked at the nature of scripture because that is so important in terms of hermeneutics, if you have a different view of scripture than what we do, the grammatical, historical, contextual approach, then uh, your hermeneutic will be different as well. So we introduced that approach, the grammatical, historical, contextual method or approach. We commonly refer to it as literal. And today we will spell out in more detail what we mean by literal. It's not literal in a wooden sense, but it's more of a simplified way of describing grammatical, historical, contextual, kind of a long title. So the main elements of this approach is we look at the laws of grammar because those are important. I gave you a little introduction. We'll pick up on that today. And historical because today I will focus on that aspect and show why that is so important and why it's a major hermeneutical principle. In fact, it's the second one that we will look at after the linguistic principle, which deals with the grammatical part. And then we'll look at the contextual principle. So it's grammatical, historical, contextual, and more simply, the literal approach. So last time I started in on the linguistic principle. And when we talk about the linguistic principle, we define it or describe it as a principle where you determine meaning by the conventions of language. I gave you a brief basis for that. We said it's based on the fact that God is the creator of all things. God created mankind And God is the creator of language. Not only is the creator of language, but God himself communicates. So language comes from him. And because it comes from him, he has chosen to utilize language that he has given 
in communicating to his creatures. So he communicates uh, to us through language. And I gave you the Genesis 1 passage in the original creation, this each, each day of creation. In fact, in some creative days, more than once, God speaks, and he speaks the universe into existence. So language originates in him. And he has built mankind to be able to communicate back to him and to one another. We are built with the capacity to be able to form thoughts in our minds. And then God has built us in such a way that we have not only a voice box, but we have lips, we have tongue, we have teeth. We use utilize all of that, lungs, even our throats particularly in pronouncing some Hebrew words, they come deep from the throat. So language utilizes all of that. You could even include facial expressions and nonverbal communication that we have as well. But all of that was built in by God himself. So he has chosen to communicate to us in his word in a written form. So when we look at the linguistic principle, we utilize all of the principles that we've discovered, not only from Scripture, but outside of Scripture, all of those things that make language work. So we determine meaning by the conventions of language, and this is perhaps the most important of the hermeneutical principles, so we'll spend plenty of time looking at it. Looked at the beginning of it last time. I'll give you another look today. And you will notice that when we get into the exegetical process, much of the effort and time that we spend will be in analyzing the actual grammar, words, phrases, paragraphs, etc. And when we are doing that, we are applying this linguistic principle. So everything related to language in a broad way is captured by the linguistic principle. So obviously it deals with language itself, and we talked about scripture being originally written in three different languages, primarily Old Testament, primarily Hebrew, but there are some passages in Aramaic, and all of the New Testament in Greek. So To fully take advantage of the linguistic principle, it would be good to have a little bit of background and even proficiency in the original languages. This course will be limited to a translation, obviously the English translation. So we utilize the conventions of language from uh, English, but keep in mind that for better precision and more actual understanding of the biblical text. You want to always have access to the original languages. And for the for the situation of most people that don't have that, we depend on commentaries and we depend also on good teachers and other means of getting us back to the original languages. So if you have a Bible teacher that uh, takes you to the original languages and he has proficiency in it, then he's applying this linguistic principle. 
We also looked at the text itself. And again, this pertains primarily to the original languages because you have to have confidence in the actual text that is available. We don't have originals. We don't have anything that any of the writers of Scripture composed. We have copies, and many of those copies are hundreds of years after the writing, the original writing of either Old Testament and New Testament. So I gave you a little background on textual criticism and the fact that we don't have originals. That means we have copies. And the fact of the matter is every one of these copies are full. Well, I shouldn't say full, but do contain what people might criticize as mistakes or variants. That's what we describe them in textual criticism. They vary from the original text. And the science of textual criticism is a science that is designed to reconstruct the original text. And I mentioned that textual criticism is a broad science and is utilized by any language or any document that needs reconstructing. I use the illustration or the fact that all of the classical departments of universities utilize textual criticism because none of them have the original text of any of the Greek ancient documents, so they have to be reconstructed. So this is a well-established, well-known, and science that is available, and we as believers and biblical scholars utilize same principles in reconstructing the biblical text. Well, if there are what some describe as mistakes or variants, I gave you some examples of why we have a high degree of confidence. In fact, we have a higher degree of confidence in the biblical text than any known writing outside of Scripture. Because we have far more copies available, and the copies that we have are closer to the actual writing of the documents. And we're talking about magnitudes here, so if anyone would question scripture, any secularist, we can argue from the fact that uh, not only do we have a, a far greater abundance of data to be able to work from to be able to reconstruct the biblical text, that gives us a high degree of confidence that we have within the text. In fact, we have more than what was written because we have some variants, obviously, that that uh, were not part of the original that are in some of the copies. But we have confidence that with the abundance of data that we have, we not only have every word of Scripture but we have more than what was written. So the decision is deciding which reading represents the original text. And I closed last time with a quote from a Greek scholar, A.T. Robertson, who's also a textual critic. And he's giving kind of a feel for the data available that textual critics have in reconstructing the biblical text. He says there are some 8,000 manuscripts of the Latin Vulgate. Now, that's a translation. 
and at least a thousand for other early versions. He's talking about translations here. And textual criticism can utilize translations as well. They're somewhat of a secondary source. Your primary source are, if you're dealing with the Hebrew text, the Hebrew copies, or if you're dealing with the New Testament, uh, the Greek manuscripts. But if there's still not clarity there, you can still go back to the Latin Vulgate and other early versions. So we have an abundance just in that alone. Then he says, add to that over 4,000. And I mentioned last time that since the writing of A.T. Robertson, we found at least, oh, about 1,500 at least, and maybe close to 6,000, or 1,500 or 2,000 more. Uh, making up the 6,000 there, Greek manuscript copies of portions of the New Testament. So, besides all of this, much of the New Testament could be reproduced from the quotations of the early Christian writers. And he's referring there to the the Greek writing writings of many of the church fathers. So, we have an abundance of data available. So, that gives us a very, very high degree of confidence that what we have today is essentially what the original writers wrote, both Old Testament and New Testament. So there's not a question concerning the text, but I mention this as a background for you all. You'll be using only the English text, unless you have Greek background. But you will notice, if you're using a good study Bible, that in Some of the margins, you'll see little notes, footnotes that are after a word or a phrase or maybe even an entire verse. And it'll say something to the effect that some ancient manuscripts omit this word or add this phrase or whatever the situation is, depending on the textual issue that's at stake in that particular passage. And so now you have a little bit of an understanding of what they're talking about, what they're talking about is in comparing these various copies, the reason they raise it is because there's still perhaps a debate between what the translators decided upon. In other words, they chose a variant because they felt that the evidence supported that word or that phrase over the one that they're calling a note to in, in the margin there. And sometimes there may be two, three, four options, and oftentimes some of those lessers are not not mentioned in, in the margins there. So that just kind of gives you an idea of what's going on behind the scenes there that you don't have access to because you don't have the original language background. So textual criticism is part of the exegetical process when you involve yourself with the original languages. A very important area is called lexicography. This is a subset of the linguistic principle. And what lexicography attempts to do is to define or to derive the meaning of particular words. And we'll spend a lot of time talking about How do you decide what the meaning of a particular word is in any particular context? And in the exegetical part of the course, I'll show you how to do a word study. 
And in fact, I will show you how to do it. If you have just a couple of tools, you can do a word study from the original language, even though you don't have uh, an understanding of the language itself. But I'll show you how you can do that. So lexicography is that whole area of deciding the meaning of terms or the meanings of words. And again, whether it be in the Old Testament or the New Testament. Now, there are at least four major areas in deciding meaning, and we'll go over this again later. I'm just kind of explaining the principle to you and some of the aspects of it, so that when we get to the actual utilizing of the principles, you understand what we're talking about. So in determining meaning... The first thing that we will do, and the first thing that we will do in, in doing a word study is we want to look at usage. In other words, how is this word used in the Bible overall? Not only the biblical writer that you are studying, whether it be New or Old Testament, but how is this word perhaps used even in the Old Testament? That would be part of doing a word study. And if you're in the New Testament, more specifically, how is it used in the New Testament? And you do that by, first of all, determining the range of meaning. What we mean by that is what are the possibilities of which this word is used? So I'll show you how to do that. It's it's not a difficult thing. It can be laborious depending on the number of occurrences that occur in the Bible. So you determine range of meaning. And by the way, this is the primary means of determining meanings of words. Along with that, if you're dealing with a particular word, and, well, any word, context, and we'll talk about the contextual principle in a moment, but context determines meaning always. So... You look at how a particular author is using that particular word, and now in determining the range of meaning, you try to categorize. Okay, he's using this word in this sense. And as you look up other passages, you'll find that other writers will use that same word, perhaps in a slightly different sense. And again, in another context, it might be used in even a third sense, fourth, fifth, sixth, etc. So context. And we'll go into this in more detail. I'm just giving an overview. But let me illustrate it with a word that has a wide range of meaning. Let's take the word trunk, for example. Hey, Ray. Yes. I'm sorry to interrupt, but you're displaying your slide and the next slide. You may want to change that to just showing your current slide. Okay, thanks. I'm glad. Yeah, I do want to do that. Let me re-see it set up. I forgot about that. Sorry to interrupt. No, no, I'm glad. I wish you had interrupted sooner. I'm going to reprimand you for not interrupting sooner. Let's see. There we go. Yeah, I forgot about that. I was going to do that, and I forgot about it. 
Okay, so the word trunk, how can you define that word? What does that word mean? Well, by itself, without a context, you really don't know what that word means. So you need a context to understand the meaning. And by the way, I'll make the point later as well. What does a dictionary do? In fact, feel free to answer on this. This is a question. First of all, the question, does a dictionary give you meanings of words? It's a yes and no question. Gives you a range of meanings. Very good. So the answer is technically no. It gives you a range of meaning. In fact, a dictionary will have a listing, one, two, three, four, or however many. It'll give you a range of meaning, just as I didn't recognize the voice. Was that Eric? That was Steve. Oh, Steve, okay. So it gives you a range of meaning, and this word, represented by the circle there, has a wide range of meaning. Most words in English and also in Greek have a much narrower range. So if you're reading or you're speaking and you're talking about the trunk of a car, in other words, the context pertains to an automobile, then immediately an image comes into your mind and you envision, unless you're talking about a Volkswagen, a compartment in the back part of the car. But if you're talking about a different context and you're talking about an animal in Africa, then you have a totally different image in your mind because the word trunk has a totally different meaning in terms of an elephant. It doesn't even look like the compartment of a car, but yet it's used using the same word. So the word trunk only has particular meaning in a particular context. And we could even add to it, if you're talking about a tree, a tree has a trunk, very, very different from an elephant, very different from a car, and you can go on. If you're talking about a communication trunk, that's different as well. If you're talking about a trunk in an attic that has dust, and you open it up, and it has mementos inside of it, each one of those, and you might even come up with others as well, but the word trunk, the reason I say it has a wide range of meaning is because in every one of these, there doesn't even seem to be much correlation between the word trunk and its meaning in its particular context. Now, I use that because this is kind of very vivid to be able to see and to be able to understand the connection between meaning and context. So context determines meaning. And when we do a word study, we're going to do the same thing. We're going to look up different words and see how they're used in different contexts. And then we'll come up with one, two, three, four, five, or six, or however many different ways that word is used. And most words in the Bible are used maybe one, two, three, sometimes more, but perhaps not as many ways and as diverse as the word that we use as an example here. So words have a range of meaning, and dictionaries will give you that range of meaning. And now, if you know that range of meaning, these are the possibilities. And now you select 
depending on the context, the meaning of the word that fits that particular context. So we'll do that with biblical words. Also, meaning also can be determined at least partially from etymology, but I note that etymology has limitations, and we'll talk about those limitations in more detail as well. In fact, your primary means of determining meaning is not etymology. It may be helpful, but in some case, it may even uh, be unhelpful. It, it may may lead you in the wrong direction because words over time, we'll talk about this later as well, sometimes change their meaning. Etymology is a science or an area where you study the history, the development, the origin of words. So sometimes understanding the etymology will help you. For example, the word hippopotamus, the English word hippopotamus, probably comes from two Greek words. Hippos, in Greek, is a horse. Patamas is river in, in the Greek language. So you put the two together, and you have hippopotamus is something like a, a horse of a river, or a river animal, or a river creature of some sort. And that probably is the etymology, so it may help in a case like that. But there's a lot of cases where it uh, may not help. Another word, another example would be makrothumia in the Greek text. Uh, that's composed of two parts, makros, which means long, and thumia, which means feeling. So you put the two together, you have long feelings, or in this case, the word usually has the idea of long-suffering, and that's how it's translated in some context. The idea of patience, and more modern versions will translate it patience. Some of the older versions will translate it long-suffering. So there's an example where perhaps the word is derived from the Greek word makro. And in that, you can see that the etymology might help you see the meaning of the word. But, in a lot of cases, it's not helpful at all. For example, the word, even a simple word like nice, linguists believe that it comes from a Latin origin, and it comes from a, a word that means ignorant. So you tell somebody, well, you're a nice person, and uh, they've done etymology on it. It's an insult, but in reality, uh, what etymology has done there is giving you a misleading meaning of the word as it's used today. Another example may be the word gay, because of the, the, the way the word has been changed in more recent time. In the past, the word gay conveyed the idea of joy or happiness or contentment of some sort. But today, if you use that word, it not, does not necessarily have that idea anymore because the word has changed. So words sometimes change, and when they do change, then etymology is not as useful 
as you might find it in other cases. So there's lots of limitations, and that's just an example of be careful with etymology. I know a lot of Bible teachers sometimes stress etymology, particularly if they don't have a real good background, and it gives a sense of, oh, this, you know, this explanation has authority to it. You know, he's using etymology, but you need to be careful with it. It can be subjective in some cases. So, uh, in general, in practice, I have seen, when I do a word study, uh, that's probably the last area that I will go to unless I happen to just see perhaps a need to do it. Sometimes it's useful when you don't have very many occurrences of a word in the in the scriptures. In some cases, a word is only used one time in the New Testament, for example, or a couple of times. And in those cases where you can't develop the range of meaning, then sometimes etymology might might be a little bit helpful there. But if you have an abundance of usage of a word, then uh, usage is the primary means of determining uh, the meaning. Now, sometimes also, well, here's what I was just telling you. It, it can, it's theoretical in some cases. Sometimes we don't even know the origin. It's, the origin sometimes is, specu- is, a, is speculative, so makes you, making it theoretical. Uh, meaning changes over time. It's different in different ages. So I gave you some examples of that. And meanings sometimes have a different origin, giving different meanings that are not used in present time or not used even in biblical time. Too subjective. And sometimes there's little relationship to the component parts An example of that in English is pineapple, putting two words together. You might think, if you thought in terms of etymology, well, maybe we're talking about some sort of an apple that comes from a pine tree. Well, you obviously know that that's not the case. A pineapple doesn't come from anything related to any pine tree. In fact, it comes from a totally different tree altogether. But that's the point little relation to the components. And I just mentioned a while ago the false sense of authority that you might get from a teacher that uh, abuses the use of etymology. Another fourth area is sometimes synonyms are useful. So you have a meaning of the word and you come across other words that have similar meaning. You can compare them in, sometimes they occur in the same context, and you can see maybe slight differences or uh, further insight into the meanings of words. So let's lexicography. Determining the meaning of words, we'll spend a lot of time developing that. We'll also spend a lot of time dealing with what's called syntax, or another word for that is grammar. The grammar of a passage is very important, so we want to Make sure that we have a handle of how words are used, not only in terms of meaning, but in terms of how they're used in relationship to the other words in a particular sentence. 
We're talking about subjects and verbs and direct objects, prepositions, that sort of thing. How are they functioning? That's syntax. Because as words function together, they form ideas and they communicate thoughts. Individual words can do that, but words work together to to communicate ideas as well. And those relationships of words we describe as syntax. And you'll see in the exegetical process, we'll spend considerable amount of time. In fact, probably the most difficult for most students, and was certainly for me, was the area of grammar. So I had to do extra work to be able to develop the skills to be able to do good exegesis. Another area not so important, but sometimes comes into play, is phonology. Phonology is the study of the distinctive sounds of language. Now, it's not as important because we're written, we're, we're dealing with the written text. But from the written text, you can also sometimes see that a writer will put words together because they have a relationship with sound. And let me try and illustrate probably a clear example of that in in the book of Genesis. I don't know if you have your Bibles handy, but turn to Genesis chapter 2. I think we have an example of Moses as the original writer putting two words together that have a similar sound. Uh, we call that accidents. Uh, terms sometimes chosen that fit together. Bible teachers call that a play on words where an author may select a word that sounds similar to another word, putting them together. Sometimes their meaning is different, but he puts them together for an effect. An example of this would be verse 23 of Genesis 2. And this is Adam. And the man said, this is after the creation of the woman, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. And in the Hebrew text is Isha. And then the man says, because she was taken out of Ish. Now, some scholars don't think that there's even a relationship between the two words, or if the relationship does exist, it is not a direct relationship. But it appears that Moses is using the two words there because they sound similar. Ish, Isha is not the feminine of Ish in the Hebrew text. But the two are selected together because they have similarity of sound. Now, similarly, in verse 25, the man said to his wife, or or the man and his wife were, were both naked and were not ashamed. The word naked there is the Hebrew word aram. And then if you go to the next verse, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field. The word crafty there is arum. And I think that's a deliberate choice of words to contrast this innocence, this 
nakedness of the man and the woman now are before this this crafty in an evil way this this serpent this creature and you you know the passage there we had the beginning of the account of the fall of man so you have some contrast there and then we're going to see all of the issues involved there but that's a play on words i think two of them very close together in the book of genesis that's why i choose them but you see that also in the new testament there are Similar usages of phonology in some passages. Sometimes Paul will string together words that all begin with the same letter because that kind of reinforces maybe a point he's making. But you don't pick that up unless you get into the original languages. And uh, so it's kind of a minor area for... The, the course that we're dealing with. But I bring it up just so you're aware that that's part of the linguistic principle. More importantly is the area of morphology, and this is even more important in the original languages. Morphology deals with the different forms of words and how words, in some cases, are inflected. Now, Greek in Hebrew, are highly inflected languages. English is not so inflected or less inflected. We don't uh, use morphology that much in English. Well, it does occur, but not as uh, prominent as the original languages of the Bible. In fact, you spend most of your first year Hebrew and your first year Greek in the area of morphology, seeing how prefixes change the meaning of a word or how different letters within the word change the meaning or endings, how they change the meaning. And this adds precision to the language. So if you can study the original languages, this is where the precision comes from because oftentimes a word just by the very prefix or the very ending makes the word very, very precise as opposed to English that does not have as much inflection. We inflect an example in the plural. When I say book, that's singular. When I say books, that's an inflection. I add an S to the end of the word. That's morphology. Adding an S makes it plural. And in Greek and Hebrew, you have lots of changes. You have a stem or a basic element of the word, and then it changes depending on, in Hebrew, the different pointings and the different additions, whether prefixes or suffixes, and you have something similar in Greek as well. So that's morphology. Uh, We'll deal with it in English. We'll see that, but you'll see it even more so if you go to the original languages. Another area, literary devices. We'll get into that in great detail. Language uses quite a number of different literary devices. We'll look at many examples of them, different ways how language uses certain combinations of words or phrases or ways of communicating ideas through these literary devices. So we'll take a close look at that and spend maybe a couple of hours at looking at some common ones that are very 
evident in, in Scripture. So that's the linguistic principle, and there are other areas, but these are the main areas that we will deal with. Some of these, like textual criticism, in this course we'll not deal with phonology. Uh, that'll be a minor issue in this course as well. But all of the others, very, very important, even in the English text. Any questions on that linguistic principle? As you can see, very important and one of the most important areas that we'll consider in dealing with these hermeneutical principles. Any questions at all on that? Ray, this is Mark. I had one question about phonology. Um, I was under the impression that the original languages weren't spoken and so how would we be certain of what the phonology of a word or a, a phrase is? Well, the original languages were spoken. Hebrew was spoken. I think you're referring more to Hebrew because Greek obviously was spoken in the first century. But Hebrew was spoken. And if you remember, even in the uh, uh, restoration of Israel to the land, remember Ezra stands up and he reads the Pentateuch. He read it. So, reading it, they would have heard that that play on words when he was in the book of Genesis, and there's others elsewhere in the Pentateuch as well. So, the languages were read, and uh, I think what you're referring to is we don't know some of the pronunciations until the Masoretic text text, uh, pointed the text, but the, the manuscripts don't have the pointing. So we don't have precision as to, or certainty, I should say, in terms of how some words were pronounced. But the Masoretes did some work to try to reconstruct all that. But the languages were spoken. Make sense? Yeah, thank you very much. Yep. Any others? Before we go on to the contextual principle. Let's talk about the next most important principle, context. I've already given you the description of it. I said that context is the final determiner of meaning. I gave you an example of the word trunk. You can't determine the meaning of the word until you know it in its context. But you can't understand the meaning of a phrase unless you see it in its context and see how it's related to the other words around it within the sentence and even beyond the sentence. Context is the final determiner of meaning. Now, if you think about it, when we communicate verbally to one another, not even in writing, but just verbally, when we talk, sometimes we'll use a word, but the listener understands that word because we give them a context. Even the illustration that I gave you, if I use the word trunk and I'm talking about it and I say, you know, go get the toolbox that I've got in the trunk, you don't go up into the attic and look for it in the the trunk that you might have in an attic. Nor do you even think about the idea of an elephant. So in speaking... We give clues in the words that we use, in the sentences that we choose. We give a context. So we don't think about it unless there's a misunderstanding. Then we begin to kind of probe it further. 
and so also in written form, when we study the, the written text, context is the final determiner meaning, so it's very important to develop the context. So let's talk about context, and I'll start by giving you an illustration of it using that same word. I kind of made up a silly sentence to illustrate. Sometimes you can use the same word in a close proximity, in other words, in a close proximity of context, and yet within that context, closer to that word, you have enough ideas or words associated with the word that you are able to determine the meaning of that word in each part of this one sentence. So here's a sentence. Pack the trunk in the attic. So I'm not talking about a car, because I've added the little phrase, in the attic, and put it in the trunk of our car. Now I'm more specific there. So we can drive to Africa and park next to a tree with a large trunk. So I specify the context of that trunk, which is different from the first two, in order to watch the animal with a large trunk. Okay, any confusion as to what we're talking about? We're using the identical same word in the same sentence. So we're talking about a context, a a small context, where I've got the word four times in that same sentence, but within the smaller context, you have little phrases that specify or give you enough clues that you don't confuse any of the usages of the word trunk. Four different ways, four radically different ways, yet context determines each of them. So when we're talking about context, we're not just talking about within a sentence. It can be even within a sentence, and here's an example of four words identical in one sentence. And by the way, I'm going to give you an example of a word that Paul uses in the same sentence, and this is not uncommon. He'll use the same identical word in the same sentence and uses it in two different ways. So when we're talking about context, we're not just talking about within a paragraph. We're not talking about just within a sentence, but it can be just within a part of a sentence and a phrase. Does that make sense? So that's context. Now, there are different kinds of context, or types, you might say. And what I'm starting out with, and what I gave you an illustration of, is what we would call textual context. This is the primary context of any given passage or any given word. We're talking in terms of relationship to other words. In the example I gave you, other words within the same sentence. But you'll also notice that when we start dealing with sentences and paragraphs, you might have only one word that you're looking at, and you're looking at how that word is used in that particular sentence or in that particular paragraph. That would be the textual context. And that textual context will extend. I'll get to that in a moment. But let's look at the second type of context. We can call that literary context. And by literary, we're dealing primarily with literary form. 
what's the literary form? For example, the the Psalms are primarily within a poetic context. Some of the prophecies of Isaiah are within a poetic context. So within that context, you're going to treat the words within that context, the sentences within that context, metaphors, etc., utilizing principles that are associated with poetic literature. A word in the book of Acts is within more of a historical context. So you have different contexts. But even within the book of Acts, you might find a word within a sermon of Peter in Acts chapter 2. So, yes, it's within a historical context, but it's also within that more specific literary context of a particular form of historical writing, a record of a speech or a sermon or a message. So that's literary context. And you take into account both when you're dealing with with context. There's also a historical context. All passages, and we'll talk about this principle itself, we'll apply this principle as it applies to context, but every passage has a historical context as well. And you take into account that particular context. Uh, we'll talk about another principle later on. We'll call that the progress of revelation, where God revealed progressively. He didn't write the Bible all at the same time, over a long period of time. And over that long period of time, there are different time frames, different historical time frames, eras, dispensations, you might even say, where things were different from, say, a different time frame not only historically, but in other ways as well, related to the historical. So you develop a historical context as well. So we'll talk about that when we talk about the historical principle. You don't find an example. Uh, don't read doctrines related to the church into passages that occur in the Old Testament. Because in the progress of Revelation, we believe that uh, the church is different from uh, what we have in the Old Testament. So the reason we don't read the church in the passages in the Old Testament is because we believe that that is a totally different entity that Jesus introduces, he first mentions it in the Gospel of Matthew, and and then it's developed later on. We see it also in the book of Acts, but it's not fully developed until we have more specific explanation and uh, definition from uh, the letters that Paul writes particularly. So, Words or concepts or theology have a historical context. Passages can also find themselves in different cultural contexts. So you need to apply another principle, a cultural principle. But these are different contexts. They're all interrelated 
and you deal with them in developing a, the full context of any given passage. Lots of passages we mentioned already in the book of Genesis, obviously, the latter half of Genesis or the latter portion beginning in chapter 12 is in a patriarchal culture, which is distinct from a pre-flood culture, which is distinct from the Egyptian culture of the book of Exodus, which is distinct from the Israeli culture after Israel becomes a nation and things take place in the land of Israel. And that Old Testament Israel cultural context is different from the Judaistic culture of the first century. The culture that Jesus dealt with is a different Judaism than the Judaism that occurs before the Babylonian captivity. So you have all of these different cultures. You also have in the first century a Mediterranean or a Roman Empire culture. And you take all that into account. So that's context. That's part of context. Passages can also have a theological, number five, a theological context. And you need to take that into account. And what do I mean by a theological context? Well, an example of this one, I'm teaching through the book of Romans right now. And I've completed the portion that speaks about justification by faith and faith alone, apart from the law, apart from works. That's Paul defining what he's talking about in terms of justification. Then you get to the book of James and you come to chapter 2 in the book of James. And James says, well, faith without works is dead. Oh, no. Do we have a contradiction here? And he's talking about, he's using the same words. He's using justification. He says justification is not by faith alone, but it has to be accompanied by works. What are we talking about here? Do we have a contradiction in theology? Do we have Paul opposing what James taught? Because James wrote earlier than uh, the book of Romans. Is Paul contradicting him? Well, we have two different theological contexts. The context of the book of Romans, yes, he's writing to a believing audience, but he is writing not only theologically, but he is describing the situation of an unbeliever to a believing audience so that they understand the theology of soteriology so that it can be more effective in their evangelism. So he's explaining the doctrine of justification by faith, and it's by faith alone. James is dealing with a totally different theological context. James also is writing to a believing audience. He uses the word brethren throughout Not only the entire letter, but the context of chapter 2. So he's speaking to believers, fellow believers, brethren in Christ. But what he's doing in that context, he's addressing the brethren more directly in terms of the Christian walk. So he's talking about a justification that includes works 
that is different from the justification that Paul is talking about. Paul is talking about a justification to enter into a relationship with the Father, with God, and it's on the basis of faith alone. It's by grace, by through faith alone. James is talking about living the Christian life in the world and being justified as people observe that life. And that justification has to have something that accompanies faith so that that faith that is unseen has substance to it or evidence for it. Does that make sense? I don't want to get too far off onto theology here. The main point I'm making is you have, I think, to properly interpret both those passages to avoid either contradictions or distortions of theology. Uh, you have to take into account the theological context, two different theological contexts. And there's other examples that we can utilize. Does that make sense? Is that clear? Or did the illustrations just muddy the waters? <laughs> uh, Ray, it make, this is Steve, it makes sense. But uh, one question would be, how do you know what the theological context is? And you have to use all the other tools to figure that out sometimes, don't you? Exactly. You, you use the exegetical process to de- develop that theological process. That's part of what you're doing is you're developing that theological context. Uh, I gave you a hint on it. Part of it is centered on the word bro- brothers or brethren. But part of it also, if you read through the book of Romans, for example, uh, he's, he's speaking more in the third person. So he, he's describing, he's not describing the audience. Um, in fact, since you asked the question, let me turn there real quick. As the example, when he begins, in other words, his whole discussion, he starts, first of all, by showing that all are condemned. And he starts in verse 18. That's the beginning of the doctrinal portion of the book. And notice how he describes it. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Okay? So, in his description, he's going to follow, and he's describing the situation of humanity in general. He's not accusing the Romans of being unbelievers, he's describing, I believe, to a Christian audience, and you can show that from other passages in the context. He's speaking to the churches at Rome, for example, the introduction. But he's doing it by describing in the third person. In other words, he's describing this condition or this group of people. Now, if there were anyone in the in the church at Rome that would fit that qualification, then it would have a direct application to them. But notice also when you get to chapter 5, when he is going to get to, when he's completed at the end of chapter 4, the doctrine of justification by faith, he changes. And he says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. In other words, we, including Paul and the Romans, already having been justified, now he's directing his attention to the audience more directly, whereas before he was addressing them more kind of uh, 
detached from who he was describing. And if you go to the book of James, you're going to see the way that James treats it. He's dealing more throughout the book directly with the audience. Not like Paul is doing in the book of Romans where he's dealing with a believing audience, but it's detached uh, from the discussion. Does that answer your question? Yes, thank you. So, in developing the theological context, uh, you'll utilize the other things that we'll talk about in the exegetical process. We'll put all the principles together. Let's talk about uh, another area of context. We could describe it as circles of context. There's what we might describe the specific context. In other words, that's the portion of scripture that we have under study. Whether it be just a specific word, or whether it be a specific phrase, or whether it be the specific uh, a sentence, the entire sentence, or even before that, maybe an independent clause. That's the specific context. Or it could even include the entire paragraph. In other words, I'm setting this paragraph. That's the specific context. So everything in that context has a relationship to everything else. All of the words are within that specific context. Now, that's the primary context that you are developing. So you develop that specific context textually, historically, culturally, even theologically. Now, you don't necessarily think through all of that in every passage, but if it comes into play, then then that's what you're doing in that specific context. Now, when we speak of circles of context... All of the passages surrounding that specific passage we call the immediate context. Now, the information or the words and the sentences and the paragraphs around that specific context has an influence on that specific context. So, the sentences, if you're just looking at a particular sentence... The sentences around it, those would be the immediate context. If you're studying a paragraph, then the paragraphs around it, at least the paragraph immediately preceding, and at least the paragraph immediately following. That includes the immediate context. Now, that will have an influence on the understanding of that word. So, when you're studying that word or sentence or passage or paragraph, you take into account the immediate context. Where does that passage fit within a larger context? So, as an example, I'm using, I can't even remember what passage I used here. This looks like looks like a passage out of 1 Corinthians. Don't even try to read the text. I'm just going to illustrate here. You might notice that, uh, you, let's say we're studying verses 33 through 37. That looks like a paragraph in itself. It's broken up in the text there. So whatever precedes it would be the immediate context. 
But we're, we're looking at 33 to 37. So the immediate context is at least, this looks like the, the paragraph preceding, at least 31 and 32, verses 31 and 32, which looks like two sentences, or is that, it's too small to tell there. Is that a comma? Maybe one sentence. Now, if need be, you might include verses 27 through 30. That could still also, depending on what's there, could also be part of the immediate context. Now, if you have a new division, let's say at verse 27, then more than likely you would want to include 27 and 30 in the immediate context of verses 33 through 37. But what else is the immediate context? Not just what precedes, but what does the writer say immediately after? So the immediate context, textual context, includes verses 38 through at least 42, which seems to be the next paragraph, at least it. But it could extend beyond. It could include the next paragraph as well, and maybe maybe even a third one after it, depending on how it all breaks down. But the point I'm making is you're looking at a specific context that you are exegeting, and you take into account the passages preceding, that's the immediate context, and the passages immediately following, that's the immediate context after. So that's immediate context. Now, there's a context beyond that. The context, in fact, there's some even closer besides the book. You might include the entire division of a book or the entire subdivision of a book. That would be part of the immediate context as well. But you have another circle that's wider, the book itself, because the book all hangs together a writer has a purpose, a theme that that specific context contributes to, but in understanding that specific context, you need to know the passages surrounding it all the way to including the entire book. Now, the further away you go from the specific context, the less the the uh, impact, but there's still an impact that the whole book exerts in terms of finding the meaning. So does that make sense? Now, there are other circles of context that you may go beyond the book. Sometimes it's important. For example, let's say we're studying the book of Philippians or a particular passage in the book of Philippians, and we're looking at the immediate context, but we're looking at the book. But there's a wider circle that might include three other books because of a historical context. What books might those be that you might include in a wider circle with the book of Philippians, knowing a little bit of of the background of the book of Philippians? Anyone want to give a suggestion? Pauline Epistles. Okay, that's even broader. I uh, I had only three in mind, but you're including the whole... Pauline corpus, that would be even wider than just the three books. The three prison epistles, because they're written in the same historical context. Paul is in Rome. 
Now, Philippi is a different location, and it has its own unique historical elements to it. But at least in terms of Paul's situation, we have four prison epistles. And if you look at Colossians and Ephesians, written to two different audiences, you see a lot of parallels in those two books. Not so much with Philippians, but Colossians and Ephesians. They share a lot of ideas. He deals with the family there in both books, other issues that are similar. They have a similar uh, context, at least historical. So you might look at them as well in studying, if you're studying Ephesians or even Philippians, because there's some things that historically there's some commonality there. And then you extended a wider context of the writings of Paul. Yes, sometimes uh, understanding Pauline theology or Paul's concepts might be helpful in understanding this particular specific passage. You might note that Paul never uses this word in a way that it might be indicated in this specific context, so you might be inclined to steer away from a meaning that maybe you might think initially might be applicable there, or maybe this is an exception. That's a next ethical decision you'd make. But that broader context might have an impact on how you see Paul using that particular word. Makes sense? And then beyond the book, we call that the remote context, and we've been talking about the remote context in terms of prison epistles, in terms of the Pauline epistles, and you could include another circle in there that would include just the epistles themselves as opposed to the book of Revelation and the Gospels and Acts. So there's a remote context that includes all of the epistles, general epistles, Pauline epistles. And what would be the next circle that would be a remote context after we look at epistles? The entire Bible. Well, you keep going broader. There's one within that. New Testament. New Testament or Old Testament. Yeah. So the New Testament has its own, it's a, is a circle of context of its own. And particularly issues relating to the church, you're dealing with issues totally different than what we're talking about in the Old Testament, which predominantly we're talking about a nation, the nation of Israel. So the New Testament, as opposed to the Old Testament, so the New Testament would be a remote circle of context. And then, uh, that's Steve still, right? As you say, the entire book. Uh, the whole entire book exerts a biblical worldview on that particular specific context. Does that make sense on context? Any questions on context? We'll talk a lot more on it when we get into some of the details. We'll apply the contextual principle, but it looks like we're at a good place to take a break, and when we come back, we'll take a look at the historical principle. I've categorized these early principles as essential principles. In other words, without them, you don't have the grammatical, historical, contextual approach. 
I'm going to look at some that are not as essential. They're still important, but they're not essential principles. I don't think we'll get to them today. So let's take a break. About 10 minutes and come back and we'll look at the historical principle. Well, last hour we were looking at the linguistic principle, very, very important, equally important, the contextual principle, and we'll have plenty of practice on both of those as we go further into the course, particularly the exegetical portion. And now we want to look at what is called the historical principle. And simply stated, we could say the principle is that historical setting contributes to meaning. Sometimes more so, depending on the passage, than otherwise. Historical setting is more important in historical books in other words, books that are primarily dealing with historical issues or historical events. But they also come into play in terms of even passages that are predominantly theological. For example, the book of Ephesians. Or even the book of Romans. Uh, Ephesians, Paul refers to himself as a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what does he mean by that? And maybe... He might be referring to his actual physical situation being a prisoner in Rome, or he may be using it more spiritual, but perhaps kind of playing on the physical condition he's in, but also attaching maybe theological significance as well. So historical issues come into play in even books like Ephesians and Romans. The introduction to the book of Romans, for example, even though the book generally after verse 18 is is predominantly theological all the way to the conclusion, he gives a little bit of the background so that uh, the reader understands kind of his condition. One of the things that he notes that he wishes that he could visit or he had a desire to visit them. And if you go and find out when the book was written, He was on a third missionary journey, and it appears that he's coming to the end of that missionary journey and had a desire to go to Rome, so he's probably at Corinth, and he could have taken a ship from there to go to Rome, but he ran out of time, and he explains that in the introduction, and again reminds them in the conclusion of that. And I take it that because he was not able to visit Rome personally, the second best thing is he writes a letter. And I think it's theological because this is the content of the theology, or at least an encapsulation of it, that he would have delivered had he visited the Romans personally. This is his theology, and it's the most theological book of Paul's writings. But The Holy Spirit made him run out of time so that he would write the book because he was going to inspire the book so that we would have a record of it as well. And we have the book 
by way of inspiration that gives us a lot of theology today. So historical setting contributes to the meaning, and I just gave you a couple of examples, even in books that are predominantly theological and not historical. And then again, obviously, the book of Acts, you develop an entire historical setting for the book of Acts or the Gospels or a lot of historical books in the Old Testament. Roy Zuck, one of the course texts, says that each biblical writing was written by someone, in other words, an individual, a person, to specific hearers or readers, in other words, a first century, or in the case of the Old Testament, Old Testament readers, a particular audience. And that biblical writing is in a specific historical geography, geographical situation, and each book as a specific purpose. So, what's important is that someone who wrote it, also who are the hearers or readers, and what was their specific historical situation, when did they live in terms of time, what was the background that they had, and where were they geographically. So, uh, that's the nature of each Biblical writings. That's a good summary and description of why this principle is needed and so important. But it's also very important just because of the nature of scripture and its relationship to history. So let me give you a little connection here to kind of stress the importance of the historical background. Just as I mentioned, the linguistic principle is very important because it encapsulates all of the issues of language. So also, because language comes from God, uh, that makes the linguistic principle very, very important. Similarly, history, I believe, has a direct relationship to God as well. So let's explore this in order to emphasize how important it is. The Bible, first of all, is tied to history. In the introduction, I gave you a kind of a brief overview and mentioned that the Bible is actually a story. And we can look at the Bible in terms of it giving us a history. And that history is more comprehensive, more compact or abbreviated, but it's a comprehensive history of the world, essentially, of the universe even. So the Bible is tied to history, so let me give you some evidence of that. And actually, we could even say that the Bible presents for us a complete philosophy of history. And there's a couple of passages we could look at, but let's focus only on Acts chapter 17. Because even within this single passage of a couple of verses here, we have a complete philosophy of history, which makes history not only important, but we need to view the Bible from this historical perspective, because this is the way that God has revealed himself and chosen to reveal himself. So God has a great plan for mankind that relates to history and geography as brought out by this passage. Uh, 
So the first element of the philosophy of history is it begins with God as creator. And verse 26 is the second time in the broader passage that begins in verse 24, the broader paragraph. I don't have it on the screen there, but in verse 24 it says, God who made the world and all things in it. And since he is Lord of heaven and earth, in other words, the Bible is giving us a comprehensive picture of history that begins with God as creator. And God as creator, that means that every event of history, starting with the creation, has a relationship to God. In other words, he has set events in motion by the creative act. And then in verse 26, he made from one man every nation, and that's basically what history deals with, is mankind and cultures, nations, peoples, and this is comprehensive. One man is the origin of every nation, and it's talking about all nations. So this is a big picture of essentially world history. And the next phrase here, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Very important, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. This looks at a plan that God foreordained. In fact, let's summarize these two major aspects of a philosophy of history. God as creator is the author of historical events. In other words, major historical events find their origin and source in God himself as creator. Secondly, there's a sovereign plan God determining certain things that take place that God is going to complete in time. The Bible gives us a record of that plan. So we're talking about a comprehensive view of world history. We could also say that there's a linear concept to the biblical idea of history. And I bring this up. Because this isn't necessarily the way that all historians interpret history. In fact, Eastern historians tend to view history as more cyclic. It reoccurs, uh, reincarnation, uh, reoccurring events or situations, rather than a beginning and an end point and a direction in between this linear concept. In other words... There's an unfolding plan that has a purpose that's going to end in a certain place. This is a biblical view of world history. And having determined their appointed times and the boundaries. So it includes time. Obviously, that's the most most important element of history is the progress of time. But it's under a sovereign hand and the sovereign control of a sovereign Lord. In fact, the same Lord that is described in verse 24, since he is Lord of not just things on earth, but Lord of heaven and earth. 
very comprehensive. So we could say that a philosophy of history includes time and boundaries or geography. In other words, particular land masses or spaces. So it includes time and geography, events taking place in a time frame in particular locations. That's why I see this as a philosophy of history. And not only that, but we also see what we might describe as purpose. He made from one man every nation of mankind, you might even say, in order to live on all the face of the earth. In other words, that's part of a purpose or a plan. And if that's not clear enough, down in verse 27, that's a purpose clause that doesn't even end with verse 27. There's a semicolon there. That they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Now, there's some interesting things in there that I'm not going to get into, but the main thing I want you to notice here is world history, from a biblical perspective, has a purpose. It's not random acts. It's not acts of men that can in some way alter history. And we talk about events that change the course of history. Well, from a biblical perspective, those events didn't change the course of history in terms of God. It didn't alter the plan. It may have, may have taken some new directions. But there's a plan that is unfolding that is linear. So that's a philosophy of history that has a divine purpose. So it has a God that is creator and is the author behind history who has a sovereign plan that events take place that are not random, that God is working out that plan in a linear direction. It's going to have an end point involving time and geography and it has an ultimate divine purpose. God is going to accomplish certain things, not only in the progress of time, but as the end product of that time as well. God is accomplishing something. Now, if you want a little bit more detail on that plan, I did a talk not this summer, at the beginning of the summer, and I call it World History is Jewish because I see it from that perspective, but I call it World History is Jewish from eternity to eternity. It's on my website, and I kind of lay out this sovereign plan and try to give the, the main events and the direction, this linear direction, and the, the way that history ends. And I'll add to this in a moment, but the first thing that we want to note here is the Bible gives us a philosophy of history because it is directly tied to history. So to understand history, we have to have a biblical perspective on it. Just emphasizing why history is important from the biblical perspective. To add to that, part of this philosophy is a very important element in the Old Testament, biblical covenants. So let me briefly explain, and by the way, I go into a lot more detail in another course on biblical covenants, and some of you that have taken Charlie's framework course know how important uh, he deals with them, how, how important they are in that course, 
because they're important biblically. But let me highlight some of the reasons why these covenants are so important. First of all, very briefly, what are covenants? The Hebrew word barit, very common in the Old Testament. And a barit, I could give you lots of examples. We don't have time to do that. But a a covenant is a legally binding contract. In fact, it is not very much different from contracts that we could enter into today. If you have a mortgage on your home, you entered into a legally binding contract. You could even call it a covenant with the bank or a lending institution. Those contracts have stipulations. In other words, what you are to abide by and what the bank will abide by but it's legally binding. It's a contract. It can be in the the form of an agreement between individuals. There's lots of examples in the book of Genesis and other parts of the Old Testament. It can be between tribes where they might enter into a pact or even a nation where they enter into like a, a treaty, but it's a contract where parties agree to certain stipulations. Now, when we come to the Bible, God was pleased to enter into a covenant with his people, and primarily the nation of Israel, but there's a covenant that even precedes it, the Noahic covenant with all of mankind. God does not have to enter into covenant, but he did, because I think what he's doing is he's setting in motion certain parameters for world history. Because one of the major characteristics of a barit is that it specifies behavior that is to be complied with. In other words, you have two parties, and in the contract, the stipulations outline what those behaviors are to look like. And what God does is he binds himself to certain stipulations that he's going to accomplish in time as world history unfolds. Now, most of those those covenants are unilateral or unconditional, like the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant and the New Covenant, in that the stipulations are solely dependent on what God is going to do. So God binds himself legally in a contract, and those specific behaviors or those specific stipulations, God is basically telling us what he's going to do over time. And because it it uh, is behavior that is, be, is to be complied with, it shows that God has been faithful historically in the nation of Israel. He has kept every stipulation of the covenants, but it also anticipates a future work that God will do amongst the nation of Israel because there's aspects of the contract that have not been completed yet or fulfilled. So there are future aspects to all of the covenants. Uh, I believe none of the covenants will be fulfilled until the millennial kingdom, except for perhaps the Mosaic covenant, which is a bilateral or a 
a conditional covenant where there's stipulations. In fact, the law are the stipulations of the Mosaic covenant that Israel is to abide by. Now, that covenant also demonstrates man's unfaithfulness, particularly Israel, in being unfaithful to the Mosaic covenant. And within the covenant, there's also penalties that are specified. But God has laid that out. So in the Abrahamic covenant and even the Noahic covenant, God is laying out the parameters for the rest of world history, some of which is still in the future. So covenants are very important, biblical covenants. So history is based on the Bible. And I phrase it that way, rather than saying the Bible is based on history. Now, you could say it that way, but in fact, I believe that world history is based on the Bible. And let me kind of outline what I mean by that, because I believe that biblical history is actually real history. It's telling us what God is doing in the universe and all of secular or man's record of history fits within this broader framework of biblical history. So I see world history. We can contrast secular with uh, the biblical history. Secular history records man's actions, what man has done in the past as recorded by man. Secondly, it gives an interpretation. That's the very nature of history. It's the interpretation of the events. Thirdly, secular history is distorted to the extent of the limitations of the writer, the human writer. And it always does not give us a complete picture. It's always selective. And the human interpretation is not always accurate or is not accurate or necessarily true to reality. So it always has some distortion. Fourthly, secular history can only deal with the past because man does not know the future. Fifthly, it is always speculative because you don't have all of the data. You you can't recreate the past. All you have are the traces that are left by the past. So there's a certain amount of speculation that goes into the writing of history. Now, the better the data that you have, the, the, the more accurate you might say is the portrayal, but it still is human interpretation, number two there. And sixthly, it doesn't necessarily see a purpose. There's no real purpose. In other words, what is, what is the purpose of history? There's not a history book that is clear on a purpose. There's some speculation there, but no one really sees a purpose. It's more random events that take place. Now, in contrast, I believe biblical history is real world history in that not only does it record man's actions, but it records God's actions. And God's actions not only supersede but oftentimes man's actions set the parameters and the determining uh, parameters for man's actions. So we have God's actions recorded in biblical history, which is absent from your UNM or University of New Mexico or whatever, University of Washington or whatever, University of Tennessee or 
University of Texas, whatever, doesn't include God's actions. And rather than human interpretation, we believe that what we have in biblical history is God's interpretation. So we have an inspired view of these events, an inspired view of the progress of events, and God's interpretation of those events. So this is real rather than distorted history. This is not only true to fact, but it deals with reality in terms of not only the physical material realm, but part of God's interpretation and part of God's actions uh, include events that come from outside of the physical realm. So we have a a real world history rather than, we might say in the culture we live in, rather than fake history. We have fake news. We might describe secular history as having a certain degree of not only speculation, but fakeness. And biblical history not only includes the major past events, but it also gives us the outcome. It gives us the future. So the biblical world history includes events that have not taken place. And there's many events that God reveals to us that he plans on completing beyond the age in which we live in so that we know that there are ages that are going to go beyond the present age that we're living in, which biblically we call the church age. So biblical history deals with past events, but it also includes future events. That's why I titled that talk, World history is Jewish from eternity, eternity past, to eternity future. And rather than being speculative, maybe I'll let one of you fill in number five there. What would we say about biblical history? Rather than speculative, what? Factual. Uh, even better than that, but that's good. Factual. I would say accurate. Even better than accurate. Somebody else want to stab at it? It's certain. It's no speculation at all. Okay. Even better than that. How about inspired? Yes, exactly. <laughs> How about inspired and inerrant? You could even include inerrant biblical history. No mistakes in it. Inerrant. Because it is, in fact, inspired. It would include everything that you mentioned, but goes beyond that, and we would include inspired, and obviously all of you could figure out number six, rather than purposeless, world history has a purpose, because we just described that's part of the philosophy of history that Acts 17 outlines for us. So there is this intimate relationship between what God has done in the past, history, what God is doing in the present and what he's going to accomplish in the future. And we have an inspired record of real world history as opposed to a fake or distorted or speculative history that you might study in a history text. In a secular history text, you don't even usually have a philosophy of history other than the philosophy or the approach of the writer, but it does not have a uh, uh, an interpretation that comes from God himself. 
So that's why I say history is based on the Bible, and you can fit all of secular history within that biblical, not only time frame, but within that biblical framework, that biblical historical framework. And we should, in fact, interpret secular history, and we can interpret secular history from that perspective. So this is why it's so important. This is the nature of Scripture. God has outlined for us what he is doing in time and what he has bound himself legally to accomplish, some of which has not been accomplished yet. Now, we might say, fourthly, and we see, we can look from at many passages that doctrine itself is tied to history. And let me give you some examples. For example, in 1 John, notice how John introduces his letter there. He says, what was from the beginning, this is the Apostle John, 1 John 1 through 4, what was from the beginning, we have a time frame, what we have heard, in other words, they have had an experience, at least hearing certain things, what we have seen, in other words, eyewitnesses to events, seen with our eyes, what we beheld, they even came into contact with some of these things that they're writing about, and our hands handled concerning the word of life. Now, his, his usage of the word, word there, probably is related to Christ based on what he says in John. In fact, there's some similarities between the introduction to this first letter of John and the Gospel of John. So, these things pertaining the word of life, this person... They, probably apostles, or at least John, heard certain things, saw certain things, touched certain things, was an eyewitness to certain things. Those are historical descriptions. And it goes on, and the life was manifested. In other words, it's visible, it's present, it's part of events, part of history, and we have seen and bear witness. Now they're communicating that. They're speaking of it. And under inspiration, they're interpreting it as well. And because of inspiration, this is divine interpretation. And proclaim to you the eternal life. Can you see eternal life? No. Uh, do you know that it's real? Well, no. Uh, you take it by faith, but our faith is based on the things that we can verify and we can see. So our belief in things like eternal life are based on eyewitness testimony, things that men heard, saw, handled, and were manifested to them. Which was with the Father, we can't see that, we don't see that relationship, no man has seen the Father, and was manifested to us. In other words, certain things were displayed before the apostles. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, that you also, and I think this book is part of that proclamation, that you also may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And he goes on and 
deals with other issues of theology in the letter of 1 John. But he begins with this tie-in to real time and space and experience and eyewitness recollection. Uh, Peter, in 2 Peter 1.16, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming, coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. What is he referring to there? What historical event do you think is behind what Peter is saying in 2 Peter 1.16? Anyone have a clue to that? Transfiguration. Transfiguration. Very good. Yeah, that was a historical event. They saw the majesty. God gave them a glimpse of the resurrected Christ. And that's not a tale. That, that's an eyewitness account of something that goes beyond this world. And this is now what he's, he's conveying. And then in 1 Peter 5, it says, Therefore I exert or exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker, in the words he was involved with it, also of the glory that is to be revealed. So these are experiences. So theology, Bible concepts are tied to historical event. How does John end his gospel? Or at least the second to the last chapter, uh, the last couple of verses there, verse 20, or chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Many other signs, these are miraculous events. John portrays the miracles of Christ as signs because they point to something else. Many of the signs, therefore, Jesus also performed, in other words, acts in time and history, in the presence of his disciples, there's eyewitnesses there, which are not written in this book, but these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So, eternal issues are dependent on events that took place, those events, those signs, were to testify of things that we cannot see. The the world beyond the material realm, we can't see eternal life, we can't see the next life. We can. They saw Jesus Christ, but he appeared as a man, and the events or the things that he performed testified that he was the promised one of the Old Testament. Even the resurrection Paul spends in 1 Corinthians. And if you remember, if there's no resurrection, then uh, we're still in our sins. Our faith is worthless. And the resurrection was a historical event. So everything related to the Christian life, the Christian walk. In fact, we can live in the power of the resurrection, but it comes from a belief in a real historical event, and we have testimony concerning that event. And Paul lists some of the eyewitnesses to the 
not the the resurrection itself, but appearances of Jesus after the resurrection in resurrected form. So doctrine, Christology, John 20, doctrine of resurrection, the doctrines in 1 John, other doctrines and other passages are tied to historical events. So history is very important. Bible is tied to history. And also in terms of history, we need to kind of study the essence of the history behind any given passage because passages have a historical context. So that gives you some reasoning for why this this is an important hermeneutical and, in fact, an, an essential principle of hermeneutics. So what's the essence behind the passage? Before I talk about extremes, the essence of what you look at is issues of authorship. And some books are clearer than others. Uh, the big book of Hebrews doesn't specify specifically, but we, we can, we can learn from the book some characteristics of the author. There's a few little hints in there. We may not be able to identify him. Scholars attempt to. Some think that Paul wrote it. Some others believe Barnabas and there's other candidates. Uh, but I think, I don't want to get into it, but I think it's anonymous for a purpose. And I could demonstrate that from some of the details of the text. But at least we know some things about the author, but that's a book where we don't have complete, at least, identification of the author. All of the letters of Paul, Paul almost in every one of them, I think, in fact, all of them, he starts the letter off, Paul, an apostle, or Paul, something. He identifies himself right off the bat. Others are not so clear. So, Authorship, who is the author, that's important. What is his identity? What are his characteristics? What was his relationship to the recipients of the letter? What were some of the circumstances at the time of his writing? We mentioned that Philippians was written while he was in a Roman prison, so also were the other three prison epistles. I mentioned in the book of Romans, Paul probably writes from Corinth on the third missionary journey. So what was going on on that third missionary journey? I gave you a little of that. So that gives you a little context historically for the whole book of Romans. But uh, if you're looking at a particular passage, some of these may come into play as well. So authorship and the recipients, who are they? What are their characteristics? What were their circumstances? What was their historical situation? What was their geographical location? And what was going on in that particular place? What is the date of writing? This is part of this historical background, which is important. I alluded to the fact that James was probably the first letter of the New Testament. If not James, maybe Matthew. I believe Matthew was written very early. But James was written before Romans. Remember I was talking about the theological issues there? That's why I said, is Paul contradicting James? Because James writes first. 
And Paul would, may have been aware of what James wrote as well. But the date sometimes comes into play. And most certainly, and especially with the letters, the occasion of writing, because one of the major characteristics of epistolary literature is that they are occasional. In other words, the occasion of the writing is extremely important in the understanding of the letter. So authorship, audience, date, and occasion, that's the essence of the historical background. Now, if you're in a historical book, then there's all the other historical issues as well in terms of the context that's developed passage by passage, and also background in terms of Old Testament history as well. And sometimes Old Testament history comes into play even in the epistles. So historical context or the historical principle. Now, there are extremes. There are some commentaries. I mention this because you can read some commentaries, and some commentaries overemphasize the history. And uh, in some cases, those that overemphasize the history, like liberal commentators, they de-emphasize the spiritual aspect or the theological aspects. So we don't want to go to that, that extreme. It is important, but there's a balance as well. And the other extreme is to neglect the historical background. And if we do that, then we're going to probably misinterpret a passage. So there's a balance in between. There's a need for good work in developing the historical background. But the focus is generally with what are the theological implications or what are the theological teachings and how can we develop the application from them. So those are some extremes. I mentioned the areas that you can utilize in developing this background. You can use internal data. The data that the author supplies for you, the history contained within the book itself, and maybe a passage has some allusions to maybe historical events. That passage that I read earlier, when I asked you the question, is that glory that Peter is referring to? Uh, you responded uh, very well in identifying probably the event that is behind that. So you go to the, the book of Acts, and what did Peter see there? And in that context, if you remember, Peter is actually giving them a glimpse of the second coming because it's written in a context of Jesus speaking about his return. And he announced to them that uh, some of them would see that before before they died. And he gives them a glimpse of it. And I think the transfiguration is a is a picture of what what uh, the world will see when he returns, when every eye will see him. So that passage in the book of Acts probably is the historical background to the passage I read in that uh, Peter passage. So uh, the book itself gives you little notes, and it's from the book of, what was it, First Peter? 
What was the passage I gave you? Second Peter. Second Peter one sixteen. Uh, that little phrase in there probably alludes to a historical event. So those are the kinds of things that you look for in a passage. I used Ephesians. Paul refers to himself as a prisoner of the Lord. And the book will give you more explicit, sometimes notes as well, particularly in the introductions. So you look in the book. Paul addresses a particular audience to the church at Philippi, to the churches at Rome. So you have little data about who he's writing to. And you do the same with Old Testament books as well. In general, most of them are written to Israel as a nation and as a collective people. But that's what you look for in a book. Moses identifies himself as the author of most of the Pentateuch. You don't have any notes in the book of Genesis. But from other passages, we can conclude that Moses wrote the first five books, including Genesis. So authorship, again, uh, is a major area, but you can find notes within the books themselves, internal data. That's where you look. Uh, We have another area is external data, material in the book, in the Bible outside of the book, Uh, like the book of Acts for New Testament epistles or other passages, the Gospels as well. We have events recorded that are related in other books as well. So that's outside, and then all of the Old Testament, obviously, because the New Testament relies heavily on not only the theology, but the history of the Old Testament as well. We're dealing with people that come out of that Old Testament background. So those are some of the areas. You can also look at Areas outside of the Bible, commentaries, oftentimes will give you material, historical books that are designed to give you background, introductions to the Bible or introduction to Old Testament, introduction to New Testament. This will give you a lot of external data as well. Another area is archaeology, where we have, in some cases, confirmation of some data that we have in scripture and some historical research is based on archaeology as well. So these are sources or areas to probe the history behind individual passages or entire paragraphs or entire books. So that's the third essential principle. Similar to the Historical principle, we have what we might describe as the cultural principle. And we could uh, describe it almost identical to the historical, except we substitute the word cultural. So the cultural principle gives us the cultural setting, contributes to meaning as well. And just as history contributes so also the details of the culture of whatever historical time frame we're dealing with. So the cultural setting, and that's why we study it. And just kind of a quick overview of what are some of those cultural elements that we look at. 
One of them is geography. Where does the passage find its setting in terms of geography? Or perhaps it refers to different locations, different geographical locations. And here's where maps come into play. And it's good when you're dealing with certain things or locations to find them on a map to to get a feel for the geography and also you might do other study as well to 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 determine some of that geographical background. But there are other elements as well, politics. You're dealing with different time frames, different politics at different time frames, different kinds of rulers different nations even with different politics. The politics of the Egyptians, very different from the politics of the Canaanites. And the children of Israel find themselves in both those contexts, and they're dealing with issues in both those cultural settings. So politics comes into play sometimes. In the New Testament, it touches very directly on, for example, the life of Christ, the politics of the day. Luke probably gives more details concerning political issues. So when you study the Gospel of Luke, you're confronted oftentimes with not only Jewish politics, but Roman politics. And you need to take into account some of those issues in interpreting passages. Uh, In the Old Testament, what was the political situation with the Ninevites, in terms of the Ninevites and the children of Israel, if you understand a little of that background, it might help you to understand why it was very normal, very natural. It wasn't just pure disobedience. Now, it was disobedience on the part of Jonah, but there were things that contributed to that, and in his weakness, he uh, he did not go to Nineveh. He went in the opposite direction. In fact, the geography... He went very opposite direction to the command to go to Nineveh. Uh, and there's lots of other examples we could use. So the politics behind a passage or in the midst of a passage, the sociology. Sociology deals with what kind of houses existed in that time frame. What was their transportation like? How did they communicate? deals with the tools that they used, the clothing that they wore, the weapons that they used in war, farm implements, the uh, the currency even, although that moves into the next one, but these are all sociological issues. In fact, economy partially deals with, that's a sociological element, but it's an element in itself. What factors the affected economy what trade was going on? Agriculture is a big element, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. So what kind of agriculture is involved? Horticulture, plants, trees, etc. And the products thereof. Craftsmanship refers to different kinds of woods used in the economy. Those are also sociological, but also touch on the economic issues. Taxes or economic issue come into play. Why were tax gatherers mentioned in the New Testament? Well, that was a big part of the culture, part of the economy. 
part of the sociology. Agriculture specifically, you can deal with it on its own, contributes not only to the economy and the sociology, but individually itself. Lots of passages pertaining to agriculture. Jesus drew a lot of parables that have agricultural setting, and he used illustrations from the agriculture, the the vine and the branches, parables on the soils, that those are agricultural issues. Uh, The mustard seed, the fig tree, these are all from Jesus, but you can come up with equally number a number of agricultural examples from the Old Testament as well. Uh, religion comes into play in culture. The children of Israel in the Old Testament were exposed to the gods of the Egyptians. In fact, that's a big element in the plagues. You can better understand the plagues of Egypt if you understand the religion and the gods of the Egyptians. Because all of the plagues are associated with the gods of the Egyptian culture. So the religion. Babylonian religion, different from the Egyptian. Assyrian, somewhat different as well. New Testament in Rome. The gods of the Romans, very different from many of the Old Testament gods. You might find some analogies there, but very different, including uh, the Greek culture. They had a Greek pantheon. So what is the religion? that perhaps has a bearing on what's going on in a particular passage. Kind of related to politics, you might say legal issues, but you can look at it as a subset in its own. Legal issues in lots of passages in the the Gospels, dealing with issues relating to Jesus Christ. Architecture, that's part of the culture. Structures, Temple Mount, what was Temple Mount like? How did it change? What was the temple in itself? The Solomonic Temple, we have descriptions of it. And details concerning some of the architecture there. What were homes like? Homes apparently had upper rooms because we have some passages that find their setting in an upper room, not just the Last Supper, but other passages refer to that as well. So what were homes like in the first century? And uh, what was the architecture of palaces? There's references to them. Walls, part of the city, those are, are all architectural features. The military, that's a cultural issue as well. Lots of wars, lots of battles, particularly Old Testament, Book of Joshua, a lot of military issues, military tactics, and even tactics that are not military, but God commands them to do things that go against uh, military logic, you might say. When Joshua was to go around the city of Jericho seven times, militarily, that is actually a very foolish thing to do, but in the context, if you understand some of the military background, you could see uh, the very point that God is making with the children of Israel. He wants them to be obedient no matter how ridiculous it may be, and they will find success. 
uh, just one example there. So these are issues of culture. Well, we won't have time to complete this last one on the list that I've got here, the metaphorical principle. But let's get started on it. And uh, we'll pick up where we end next week. When I mentioned the grammatical, historical, contextual approach, I mentioned that we commonly refer to it as the literal method or literal approach. And when we say literal, we don't mean that there are not metaphorical elements or metaphorical language. Uh, we don't mean that there are not even symbols or non-figurative language. So there's a particular essential principle that deals with all of those literary aspects that deal with non-literal issues or non-literal language. And we could uh, describe the metaphorical principle is that in our interpretation, we want to interpret according to appropriate metaphorical conventions. So the principle itself acknowledges that there are such a thing as metaphorical issues or language or conventions. There is such a thing as non-literal words or language and that the Bible, in fact, does utilize them. But we need to understand the nature of them to properly interpret them. And metaphorical language has particular, in literature, has particular conventions. And we interpret according to those appropriate metaphorical conventions. So let's talk a little bit about that. The Bible does, in fact, have many figures or an abundance of metaphorical language. In fact... A writer by the name of Hendry in uh, the Zuck book says the following. If, and I'm quoting him, if ask, asked what has been the most powerful force in the making of history, I should have answered figurative expression. So it's very powerful. He goes on, it is by imagination that men have lived Imagination rules all our lives. The human mind is not, as philosophers would have you think, a debating hall, but a picture gallery. In other words, we have images in our minds. He goes on, remove the metaphors, i.e. figurative expression, from the Bible, and its living spirit vanishes. The prophets, the poets, the leaders of men are all of them masters of imagery. And by imagery, they capture the human soul. So at the very heart of communication is the use of imagery and imagination and non-literal usage of phrases and words 
and 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 even a literary an entire literary form that we call poetic that has as its major characteristic the use of figures of speech or non-literal elements. So the Bible is full of images, full of figures of speech, and many of them are common to everyday literature, literature that we use all the time. In fact, a lot of the figures of speech that are used in the Bible, we use them to this very day. And I'll give you examples of some of them as we look at some of these figures, and I've got them categorized. But just to introduce it further, there's a helpful book. It's an old book, and it's called Figures of Speech Used in the Bible by E.W. Bollinger. I think it was written in the 1800s, I think, but it's still extremely useful. In fact, I'm not aware of a book of its kind today. And all the book does is it lists over 200 categories in the Bible of non-literal language and uses of uh, literary devices that are non-literal. He lists over 200 categories, and the book is over a 1,000 pages, in fact, over 1,100 pages, and it has a table of context of 28 pages, just of the table of context, where he categorizes all of these figures of speech that he uses. And he gives over 8,000 illustrations of these various kinds of figures of speech. So when we speak of the Bible and interpretation as being literal, we're not saying that there are not any of these figures of speech. In fact, there's an abundance of them. But we are saying literal in the sense that when an author is using a figure of speech, he will give you enough clues in the context that you understand that he's not speaking literally, but he's using an image or a figure of speech. And as I said, one of the characteristics of poetic literature is that it uses figure of speech very commonly. That's by, by its very characteristic. So literature outside of the Bible and certainly literature of the Bible uses an abundance of figures of speech. And many of these have very common conventions. In other words, you interpret them according to particular principles. So it's not like we have free license. So when we say literal, we attempt to interpret these figures of speech, not only according to their conventions, but we interpret them in terms of what the original author, remember the bottom line, is we're looking for what the author intended to communicate. So what is Paul or Moses or Isaiah? What is that author trying to communicate by using that figure? So we don't have a wide latitude and to go off in any tangents here. We're seeking the author's intended use. That's the literal approach. What did the author intend? Now, let me give you some categories here. And I'm going to start off with one that is very clearly non-figurative. In order to use it as an illustration 
of what we mean by the conventions of figurative language. So let's take a look, first of all, at symbols. We use symbols in our culture. The Bible uses symbols. And, in fact, the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel has many symbols, but you can find symbols elsewhere. But I want to illustrate from symbols because I think it's clear if we use an analogy of how we use symbols today as well, to lay kind of a foundation in terms of how do we interpret biblical symbols. So let's take a look at symbols. And on this slide, what I have is a series of symbolic language from different areas And if you know the context of those areas, that context, remember, context determines meanings, or determines meaning. If you understand that context, now you are in a position to be able to interpret that set of symbols. And I've got a set of, several sets of symbols that have very specific, very particular meaning. And I think a lot of these, some of you, especially if you have a math and science background, will identify almost immediately. And probably all of you can identify the first one. In fact, I'll ask, is there anyone there that does not understand the symbols of E equals MC squared? All of you understand that? Or anyone not So if I have silence, I'm going to assume. Now, if you need any context, the context of this is physics. This is a physics statement, you could even say. It's a symbolic representation of ideas where we have an E that stands for something. We have an equal sign, this E. e, The equal sign means there's an equivalence or there's a relationship at least, if not a very direct uh, equivalence, to something that is represented by an M. And in that close proximity in this context of a formula, a physics formula, M multiplied by a C And the two is symbolic as well. And when it's placed as a superscript, then in this context, it means that it multiplies the C times itself, or C squared. E equals MC is a well-known formula of physics that tells us the amount of energy that is equivalent to a certain amount of mass, when mass is converted to energy, It is a very large amount, in other words, a large amount of energy with just a small amount of mass multiplied times C, which stands for the speed of light. This is Einstein's theory of conversion of mass into energy. In other words, this is the formula for a nuclear explosion. So a tiny bit of a mass produces a tremendous amount of energy because C is a very large number and you square it makes it uh, a very huge number. But the point I'm making here, 
That's a series of symbols. You and I, in this context, need to figure out what did Einstein intend by formulating this or coming up with this concept. He had a specific meaning that he attached to E and M and C and placing the superscript. He had a particular meaning for all of that symbolic language. And from that meaning that he intended, we can understand that relationship that he's setting forth here, the equivalence of E equals MC squared. Does that make sense? And we do the same thing with scripture. If an author gives us a symbol, our task is to look in the context to find out what did that author intend by utilizing this particular symbol. He had a particular meaning in mind. We don't have the flexibility or the license to be able to, just as in this one, to make E mean whatever we want it to mean, or M or C. It has a particular meaning in that particular context. So also, every symbol of scripture, the original author, and if you want to go beyond the original author, the divine author had a particular meaning in mind. Our task is to find that meaning. That makes sense? And I've got a series of others. I won't spend as much time on them, but here's another, you might say, formula, but it has a different context. This is not physics. And if you haven't already figured it out, the context is geometry. And in the context of geometry, what does A stand for? Probably most of you can figure that one out, right? A equal is what? Hmm? Area I R squared. Okay, but it's also a particular area, not just area in general, but area of a circle. In other words, we can derive an area of any circle by multiplying a another symbol here, pi, which has a, an, a, a pr- very precise numerical value, 3.14, da, 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 times an R, which is the radius of that particular set circle, and we have a superscript 2 again, so we have R squared, so the radius of that circle times itself, times this 3.14, etc., will give you the area of any given circle with any particular radius. So geometry is the context of that. The point I'm making is each of those symbols have particular and, in some cases, very precise meaning that is intended by the formulation of that mathematical formula. So also, even in chemistry, now the reason I throw this in is because we have a 2, but the 2 here has a different meaning than the 2 in the first two uh, formulas, right? It's not conveying the idea of something squared, but in chemistry, the subscript 2 is telling us, and telling us something about the H, which in this formula stands for, do all of you know what that stands for? H2O. Water. Okay. (laughs) And in chemistry, what is telling us? Water is composed of two, uh, two elements of, of hydrogen and one of oxygen. And when you combine 
uh, hydrogen and oxygen, two of hydrogen, one of oxygen, you get water. Now, that's just a molecule, but you get accumulation of it, and you have water. But the point, again, is it has precise meaning that it's intended by that convention, by that set of symbols. And these are somewhat so obvious that we identify them very quickly. Maybe not so obvious if you're familiar with trigonometry, then the tangent of a certain angle theta can be determined by the y divided by the x uh, in in that matrix, if you might might say. So that's trigonometry. This is uh, velocity. So this is from dynamics. Velocity equals distance divided by time. Each of the symbols has particular meaning. Uh, acceleration. This is a different A. The reason I put this here, this is a different context. This A is different from geometry A. We're not talking about a circle. We're not talking about geometry. We're talking about dynamics again. In this case, acceleration. And acceleration equals the velocity. So the little v there is the same v as the v, the capital V of uh, the formula above it. So velocity divided by by time. And even the the stopwatch there, that's a set of symbols there has 12 numbers, but those numbers have particular meaning in that particular context of a stopwatch. You have a 2 there. The 2 there has a different meaning than the 2 under the H2O. has a different meaning from the pi r squared or the mc squared, and yet it's the same number but different context, so it has a different meaning. And then we have a series of other numbers. And then you have these hands or arms or whatever you want to call them. We have uh, symbolic language, a set of symbolic conventions that we're very familiar with. Does that make sense? So when we deal with symbols in the Bible, the literal approach forces you to look at what was the intended meaning of the author. Just because it's non-literal doesn't mean that we have license to introduce ideas into those symbols that the original author did not intend. That's what we mean by literal interpretation. Author's intent. And... The symbols of the Bible may not be as precise as we have spelled out in mathematical and uh, scientific formulas, but they do have meaning, and we can derive that meaning by looking at the context that the original author gives us to be able to interpret them. So in symbols, the conventions are the symbol is like an object, or, or represents something, it represents an object, that's the symbol. And that, that object has a reference, in other words, what it refers to something in symbolic language, and this is true of these mathematical ones that we looked at, or scientific ones. And thirdly, they have a meaning, or there's a correspondence, or a resemblance. And when we're looking at the symbols in the Bible, we'll 
encounter an object. In fact, one of the symbols I want to use as an illustration, we won't turn to it, but in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, Jesus gives John a vision of himself, and part of the vision is he sees a lampstand, and it has seven lamps, seven-part lampstand, and it's a symbol because later on in verse 9, what is it, verse 20, I guess, he interprets the symbol for us. In fact, here's an example where a symbol is interpreted for us. The lampstand, that's the object. It has a referent. It refers to something other than itself, or it stands for something that, that it refers to. And, it, and then Jesus gives us the meaning of that lampstand. The lampstand stands for the seven churches. So the seven lamps of that lampstand, each one represents the seven churches. So we don't make the lampstand mean something that we want it to mean. Jesus, in this case, interprets it for us. So in interpreting symbols, the first thing that we note is every symbol of scripture, whether book of Revelation or Jesus elsewhere or in the Old Testament or in the prophets, each of them have definite meaning. They have an intended meaning. They're not flexible. You can't meet, make E mean something other than energy in Einstein's formula. In some cases, like the example I just gave you, the Bible itself interprets the symbol for us. Now, there are some symbols, a few, that are not interpreted. And in the book of Revelation, I think I've encountered maybe a couple of them that in the context, the immediate context, they're not interpreted for us as clearly as the one in uh, Revelation chapter 1, the example that I gave you. But you can find an interpretation in other places outside of the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is heavily dependent on the book of Daniel, but symbols can be drawn from some of the prophetic passages, for example, that help us interpret the symbols in the book of Revelation. There are some symbols that you can understand them from the from uh, the culture. For example, in chapter 14 of the book of Revelation, John is given a vision uh, that has a setting in a vineyard, and he's using that setting to convey the idea of the wrath of God. So if you understand how grapes were processed in the first century, you can follow the analogy that is being drawn by the symbolism that John is developing in that passage, or the Holy Spirit is developing, and John simply visualizes it and conveys it to us. But what he is conveying there, it's as if humanity is in a wine press, and in a wine press, the way they process grapes is they would stomp the juices out of the grapes, and the juices would flow into a container that they would separate the pulp from the juices, but it was a, it was a messy process. 
In fact, it looked, if you had the right color of grapes, like a bloody mess. And the analogy that that is drawn in the symbolism of the wrath of God is that picture of God in judgment stomping on mankind and the blood is spurting. And in, in that context, uh, he weaves the imagery into the reality that he's conveying and he's talking about ultimate future judgment. So the symbolism comes from the culture, understanding a little bit of the background of how grapes are processed helps you understand. And uh, there's other issues that are helpful in terms of interpreting biblical symbols. And in some cases, there's the possibility of multiple uses or meaning of different symbols. I think Peter is referring to a lion in his book, a lion that roars, and uh, the use of the, the, the symbol a lion in Peter refers to whom? Who prowls about like a lion, seeking someone to devour? I think Satan is behind that one. But in uh, Genesis, we have the lion of the tribe of Judah. Same symbol or same same object, but different meaning because it's in a different context, different author, different, entirely different time frame. The lion of the tribe of Judah is a symbol for Messiah. And ultimately, Jesus Christ. So, there's an example of the same object or same symbol used in different contexts with different possible meanings. Well, our time has, has left us, but that gives you a little bit of an introduction to symbolic or non-literal language, or in some cases, figures of speech. And I'll build on that and we'll pick up next week. But that gets us a start on the metaphorical principle. And I gave you a feel for the metaphorical principle. We interpret according to appropriate metaphorical conventions. I gave you the illustration of mathematical conventions using an equal sign, etc., Symbols in the Bible and metaphorical language, they have their own conventions. Symbols are different from other kinds of metaphorical language, but those other kinds, they have their conventions as well. So before we close here, any questions? Is everything... Clear. Everything's clear. No questions for me. Great. How about Eric? Would you uh, mind closing for us today? And if there's anything else we need to discuss, we can discuss it after you pray. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for salvation. Lord, we thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus. Lord, we thank you for sending your Holy Spirit. 
Lord, we thank you for all the blessings you bestow upon us. Thank you for this class. Lord, we ask that, um, <clears throat> that, uh, we could, uh, <clears throat> use what we're learning here to study your word, to understand it better, and to apply it to our lives. Lord, we ask that, um, that you would uh, guide us and lead us, that uh, we would lay our will down to you. And uh, we pray that uh, um, for everyone in the class, for our spiritual growth, for our health. And uh, we just hope that uh, we can live lives that are pleasing to you. That would glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, any questions pertaining to the material? And then I'll ask you after any other issues. Does this make sense? Clear? Makes sense. Very clear. Uh, yep, I'm good. Very good. Thanks, Red. Keep in mind, that we're just building. We're laying a foundation, just explaining the principles. And... <laughs> couple of weeks and probably starting next week begin to apply these principles and don't forget next week we'll start an hour earlier 